Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I am a history buff. So when it comes to American history, I find the Civil War to be a very interesting period. Uh, But in terms of global history, uh, I find the medieval period to be fascinating. One of the reasons why we're reading Bernard of Clairvaux on Tuesday night. I was doing a little reading this week about the Fifth Crusade, which lasted from 1217 through 1221. And around that time, as you can imagine, tensions between Muslims and Christians were quite high. One contributor to those tensions was Sultan Malik el Kamil of Egypt, who promised gold to anyone who brought him the head of a Christian. In response, the Pope, of course, decried the Sultan, calling him an enemy of the church, showing just how chaotic and violent things were at the time. Yet it was precisely at this point that St. Francis of Assisi took a friend and engaged in an arduous journey from his homeland to Egypt to visit the sultan. Upon their arrival, the sultan and his court were probably confused by the appearance of these monks, thinking them either to be Sufi mystics in the Islamic tradition or Christians who had become disillusioned with their faith and had come to join Islam. When the court became aware that Francis was not there to convert but rather to preach the gospel, there were many in the court who urged the sultan to kill the saint. Yet Al-Kamil, who was a very religious man himself, refrained. He didn't oblige these requests. Maybe he recognized the holiness of St. Francis or admired the boldness that Francis exhibited in coming. Instead, he let Francis preach about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The sultan was so impressed by this that he actually let Francis and his friends stay in his house for a week, offering him many luxurious gifts, which Francis, because of his vow of poverty, refused, which even impressed the sultan all the more. While Francis did go there to preach, while he was a guest in the sultan's house, he lived out a rule and encouraged his partner to live it out as well, which is that they should be subject to every human creature for God's sake. And this meant, as guests, that they were not to engage in quarrels or debates with the sultan and his people. Well, it doesn't seem, based on the historical record, that the sultan had, his, had the scales fall from his eyes and became a devout Christian. We can look at this story, I think, as an example of what St. Paul talks about in our reading this morning. That is about our engagement with non-Christians. Now, last week, we began a short sermon series based on the epistle readings from Romans, which we started last week and will continue for the next few weeks. And we called it Living Sacrifices, Living Into the Christian Story. We talked about stories and the power that they have on us. So Rwandan Catholic priest and professor Emmanuel Katongale reminds us that the purpose of the church community is to bear witness to the fact that in Christ there is a new identity. And this new identity, which we receive from being in Christ, from being baptized, transcends and shapes all other parts of who we are. It transcends our race, our national identity, our sex, and our class. Our culture tells us stories that often prioritize these aspects of our identity. But in the church, we seek to understand our lives in terms of a different story. That story is the gospel. 
So last week we talked about how the story of the incarnation and death and resurrection of our Lord brings about reconciliation with God and brings us into communion, not only with our Lord, but also with each other so that we are like different parts of the same body united by the head who is Christ. This then impacts our life together in the church, which should be described by mutual love and self-giving through the unique spiritual gifts that we all possess that we can contribute to the health of the body and in the relationships that we have with one another that feature God-honoring conduct. Today's epistle reading is a continuation of the same passage from last week, but it marks a shift in Paul's view because he's no longer talking just about how we act within the walls of the church so much as how to engage those that we meet outside of these walls. And I think as we go through it, you'll agree that Francis engaged with someone who would have been considered by many a harsh enemy of Christianity in a way that summarized St. Paul's ethic towards non-Christians. To begin with, it helps to remember that Christians occupy an interesting space in that we are in the world, but not to be of the world. Father Katangale uses the term resident aliens to describe our current position. What's more, as St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors of Christ, representatives of him. By virtue of our situatedness, We touch upon those outside the church frequently, at work, at school, at the grocery store, in our neighborhoods. And the statistics tell us that as we continue to become an increasingly post-Christian society, this phenomenon of being situated against those who are not Christian will be increasingly common. What we'll see in our reading this morning is that those encounters that we have with those outside the church should be characterized by a view that doesn't see the non-Christian as, a, as an enemy or a subhuman, but rather a person for whom Christ has died. And this requires us to walk a very fine line, a line that on the one hand requires us to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel always, while on the other hand, we should also be seeking to get along with them by treating them with dignity and respect. So we can consider last week's sermon to be about discipleship, telling better stories about ourselves. And we can talk about this Sunday as a Sunday about evangelism, as telling those stories to others, communicating in both word and deed, and inviting them to participate in the story of the gospel. So Paul begins his discussion of engaging with outsiders with the exhortation, be not wise in your own conceits. In other words, Avoid the mortal sin of pride. Christians should be different from the world, but that difference shouldn't be a point of pride because the root of righteous behavior that we have is grace, not ourselves. Like Ephesians 2.9 says, this is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Put another way, Christians are conduits of God's love. We certainly evangelize using words. We evangelize by telling the truth to a world that needs to hear it. But if love doesn't underlie those words that we proclaim, well, then St. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13 that we become resounding gongs and empty noise. Paul makes it explicit that this humility that we should exhibit is not just behavior for when we're at church, but it, it should extend to those that we meet outside of it. 
And we see this in a threefold command that he gives. First, don't recompense anyone evil for evil. Second, provide things honest in the sight of all men. And third, live at peace with all men. We don't repay evil for evil because, as Church Father Origen pointed out, doing someone wrong because they wronged us is often worse because someone may have wronged us by accident or may not have been fully aware of the situation when they acted. But repaying them with evil is always intentional. For example, if you get cut off in traffic, you were wronged. Maybe the person is a selfish, bad driver. They saw you and they knew exactly what they were doing. But maybe you were in their blind spot and they didn't see you. Maybe they thought they had space and they really didn't. If you respond to that wrong, being wronged from a place that seeks to get them back, whether by yelling certain four-letter words or making certain gestures or writing their tales, well, then you're choosing to do exactly what you know you shouldn't. So instead, Paul says, we provide things honest in the sight of all men. Paul recognizes that in terms of decorum and basic ethics, there are universal standards of behavior that all of us, whether we're Christian or not, can agree upon. So Christians shouldn't be a people who are known for violating these basic rules. This means that we, this is a means by which we become at peace with all men. Of course, this is caveated by Paul. He says that we should live in peace insofar as it's possible. But the reason that, we're, that peace would be disrupted shouldn't be from our end, but rather from the end of others. Undergirding much of what St. Paul says here is the concept of missional flexibility. This appears explicitly in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 22, where St. Paul says, And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. By accommodating others then, we put them ahead of ourselves, thereby exhibiting a similar kind of humility that our Lord showed us in his incarnation and death. He became like us in order to save us. This also means that we do not take vengeance. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't times where we won't be angry. All of us will be angry at some point or another. But it does mean that even when we're wronged, we should be willing to extend forgiveness. As Socrates taught, it's better to have been wronged than to be one who commits a wrong. Our willingness to forgive people who have done wrong is a sign of faith because it shows that we recognize God's place is to judge the quick and the dead, as we say during the creed. So our normative calling as Christians is not to be instruments of judgment, but rather instruments of love. That God is the one who, in the Collect for Purity, we say, unto whom all hearts are open and all desires known, makes him uniquely qualified to be the judge of all humankind. And when we recognize that, it frees us. It frees us to love our enemy. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. 
That last part of the verse always sounds somewhat contradictory to all of the advice Paul has given us up to this point about showing enemy love. This enemy love I think that Paul's talking about is an imitation of and participation in Christ's actions towards us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So I don't think we should read the image of heaping coals upon our enemy's head as some sort of passive-aggressive attempt to get the upper hand over them. Rather, the goal is always for their good and their conversion. Christ could have called down heavenly armies on those who set themselves up as his enemies, but instead he gave himself up specifically for those who opposed him, and we are called to do the same. So over the past two weeks, we've seen that the church is simultaneously inward and outward facing. Our internal life is made up of the communion that we share with one another, where we each aid each other in developing in holiness so that we can complete our mission. And our mission is outward focused. That mission involves going into all the world and making disciples of all people. We're not to be repulsed by non-Christians an attitude that Mother Maria of Paris called ascetic disdain. But we are to positively engage them by building common ground with them, by showing them the love that our Lord showed us, even when we were far off from him. St. Paul reminds us in Ephesians that our battle is not against flesh and blood, not against other people. Rather, the battle is against principalities and powers. So from our vantage point then, people who are outside the faith are not our enemies, but victims who have been enslaved by sin and the devil, and they're in need of liberation from bondage. And we as the church are called to be the means by which God frees them. Because at some point in our lives, the church did that for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.